Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamlin. Hello, podcast. Welcome back to our series, Ecotones in the Spirit, recorded in June with Wake Forest School of Divinity. On today's episode, we had the pleasure to spend an hour or so with one of our favorite and most important voices among our neighbors and friends at Wake, Nikki Cooley. We'll let her tell her story, but she is a powerful contribution to the conversation around the ways that justice intersects with food and climate from an indigenous perspective. And as you'll hear on the pod, there's a great deal that both Anna and I were unaware of, which speaks to the importance of continued conversation with those communities that have been doing, quote, food and faith, not just for years, but for millennia, and who continue to provide cutting-edge cultural, scientific, and theological contributions to climate and food. So welcome to our conversation with our friend, Nikki Cooley. So it's my pleasure to introduce um, someone who just every time we get together, it's like meeting an old friend yet again, um, our friend Nikki Cooley. Nikki and I were Regenerate Fellows together back in 2017, and that's where I got to know her. And she was, admittedly for me, um, one of the very first indigenous voices around food and faith that I had a chance to get to know and to have a conversation with. Um, and uh, and her wisdom and the work that she continues to do is remarkable. And so it's, we're really glad to be able to catch up with you again here in North Carolina and thank you for making some time to be on the pod. Yes, my pleasure. Yeah, and I just second all of that except for the Regenerate Fellow part. (laughs) Nikki and I are blessed to be in another room um, at Wake and um, I just remember wanting to, not wanting you to stop talking once you started talking, like just that your wisdom um, has been really influential in my thinking and feeling and um, yeah, I know it, but like I often bring things that you've said and you and your story up in conversations with people because it keeps living with me. And um, so I'm really grateful that you're willing to bring some of that story to our listeners and be able to get, continue to um, plant the um, ideas and wisdom. Mm-hmm conversations. Um, I also just want to mention that I know that you're the, that you're the co-manager of the Tribal Climate Change Program and doing some really interesting and important work around how indigenous tribes are um, finding not just, I guess you've used the word resiliency um, mm-hmm. in that work. So we look forward to hearing more about that okay, as yes. well. Um, and so we'll ask, like we often do, um, uh-huh. tell us a little bit about your geography and however, however you understand that geography. Well, um, I guess the first thing I like to start out with is that I share how where I'm from is in Arizona, southwest Arizona, or no, northern Arizona, in, from the Navajo Nation. But I'm really from the earth, you know, Mother Earth. And I shared a story about Changing Woman, uh, our white shell woman. She's one of our main deities. Uh, and she created my clan, the Kinyaani, the Towering House clan, by taking um, some dirt from the ground and then mixing it with uh, some flesh that she took from under her arm and molded my people. Mm-hmm. And so I always say I am from Mother Earth. I'm from here. Wherever I go, I believe I ground myself that way because I travel so much that it, it, it does help. I, that, that's where I'm grounded, and my dad always joke, jokes, um, but he's also serious that we are the same color of the dirt for a reason, because we were molded from the earth. And earlier today, I shared a song about how everything 
that Mother Earth is, is that we are, and we can't survive. We're very much connected, and we can't survive otherwise. And um, so my, my geography um, physically is pretty much wherever I go, the Earth, um, not asphalt, but I've got to have the Earth. And I come from a very dry, arid country where there's sagebrush, pinion, juniper, and coyotes and bobcats and sheep, mm. horses, and it's just, it's beautiful. It has not been developed like our surrounding communities have, the off-reservation communities have, and I just love it. There's fresh air there, mm. and also there's hardly any noise, mm. so I really do appreciate the stillness, and I can see the Milky Way clearly, wow. and it's just a beautiful, amazing area that always rejuvenates who I am, and you know, when I'm feeling stressed out or want longing for home, you know, that's where I go. That's right. Yeah. Well, you mentioned um, goats and sheep. <laughs> and uh, yesterday in your talk, you mentioned, um, you talked about the care of the sheep, and um, Sam was not there for that conversation, mm -hmm. but when I told him about it, he wanted to hear more. So would you, for Sam's sake and our listeners' sake, <laughs> retell the sheep story? Of course. I love telling um, this part of my culture because... Navajo were sheep people, we sheep and goats, and it was in our prophecies long before they appeared in that part of the region that the sheep would come into our lives, and whether that being the Spaniards brought them, but they we foresaw their arrival, and in turn, Spider Woman um, taught us the art of weaving and how to use the wool of this animal that we had no really, uh, I guess, real um, experience in knowing how to use, use, use their wool and their meat for that matter. Um, she taught us how to weave and, th and thus she kept us clothed, she kept us warm, but we also traded with other people, other tribes and whatnot. So the sheep is, is life. The beh e'ina. It literally is life, and wherever we see sheep, whenever we see sheep, at the county fair in Wisconsin, or walking alongside the road um, in Arizona, we it, fulfill, it fills us with happiness mm -hmm. and, and, and honor because we revere the sheep, we take care of them. Um, my parents can't go a day without visiting them or talking about them. And I, I long for ha to have sheep where I'm at in Basin Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, not quite there yet. But the sheep provides not only wool um, for warmth, but for our economics, but also we also butcher the sheep for food and medicine. Um, so when we before we butcher the sheep, um, we know we have to do it early in the morning, and then we take a branch from the juniper and pinion tree. Um, and then we we bless the sheep, you know, we kind of, people say you're whipping it, but really you're just kind of touching the sheep all around, and we were praying all the while, saying that we will have strength, we will have good thoughts, and we'll be always nourished and we, with your meat that you're going to bless us with. Mm -hmm. And then we proceed to butcher the sheep, and we use every single part of it, including the, the legs, the hooves, um, the blood, the eyeballs, the tongue, because we realize what a blessing it is to have the meat. 
mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. And so we use it as medicine if someone's, just like the horse meat I was talking about. Right. When, we're, when, we're, when we're sick, um, we usually take the broth of the, the sheep bones and we drink that and mm -hmm. it makes us feel better. Mm -hmm. So we revere the sheep, the ba'inna. Mm -hmm. And I hear in this story that we have, there's ongoing conversations about how we handle livestock and how livestock may or may not play a role in climate change and all those kinds of things. And so what kind of relationship should we have? Should we distance ourselves? Should we go to you know, a strictly plant-based diet, those kind of things? But what I hear is a much more holistic um, and healthy relationship with our animals, that there really is a reciprocating relationship with animals and that it is medicine, it is strength, but also the care that, it, that the sheep require from us. And so there's, there's, this, there's this mutuality that happens that doesn't play into the dualities that, you know, particularly in my culture, you know, we want to have where we're over and above them, but rather we're sharing life together. That's, that's what I'm hearing in this care of sheep. Yes, absolutely. I think you hit it right on the head um, because I think in the beginning, um, sheep, uh, goats, and livestock were really revered, so revered we took care of them so deeply because we didn't have any other resource of, for food, for economics, and whatnot. And I think we've gotten carried away with our society, mainstream society's take on bigger is better, more is better. And also, and then thus some of us have become careless. You know, there's there's four companies in the U.S. that provide beef yeah. to the made to the entire world or entire state even. I mean, country. Yeah. And so I mean, that's that, that that's that's yeah. getting away yeah. from the purpose of having those sacred beings. I mean, the Indian culture from India revere the cow. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't do that. We see them yeah. as an we we objectify them. And so I think with the sheep, yeah, it is it, it sheep, horses, pigs. Um, we have to have that relationship, not familial, but you know, in the sense that it's. There's a, a give or take, yeah. give and yeah. take relationship. We honor them and they nourish us. And I think, and I think you speak really well to. I mean, we are we continue to see this play out. I mean, our dairy industries are being are being shrunk. Um, I see that in in my area where I mean, we're down to four dairy farms in wow. Carroll County out of a, out of a rich dairy you know, history. Um, Chickens have been kind of, they're, they're controlled by a handful of companies. Hogs are. And so mm -hmm. there's this perpetual move in our food systems to, to monopolize. Mm -hmm. um, and what you're saying is actually a deeper care yes. mm -hmm. actually spreads that work out and involves all of us in caring for these beings and making sure that everyone is fed. Exactly. And using all the pieces, too. I think that's huge as well because in commercial farming, I mean, Everyone wants the steak and the bacon, right? I mean, <laughs> and everything else. Maybe some ground beef, but like to actually, I mean, these big commercial farms aren't using the eyeballs and the hooves and all the pieces and the amount of waste. And we think about food, food waste. What was it we learned yesterday? Is like number three on the list of things that we can do to to reverse climate change or mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm. um, some of that food waste is not only the things that I'm throwing in the trash in my kitchen, it's also like in food production. Exactly. That there's massive food waste. Even as a livestock person, I've never quite understood, what do you do with the hooves? We boil them. Okay. We boil them down and then also we use it for broth. But oh, my 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 dad my mother and father they they um 
grill it on the outside grill mm. and they munch on it and then huh. also um but yeah they they make broth from it and then uh the hooves you can use it for ceremonial purposes too mm. as i wouldn't say like trinkets that might be the the best word i can come up with to put on your regalia mm. uh-huh. and whatnot because they make huh. noise yeah. oh like whatnot. like kind of like clang together yeah, clang together yeah, yeah. so huh. you, put, you would put that around your um your ankles on your moccasins Oh. and whatnot or people I don't know they have all they'll find all kinds of uses even yeah. necklaces and whatnot yeah so it's a good question <laughs> yeah it's just I mean, like I said I've been around hooved animals my whole life and you know but never really gave much thought like the well, hooves are always the one thing that I was like I don't know what you do with that yeah so. make a rattle for <laughs> your kids or something you know <laughs> consider it done yeah, yeah I love it <laughs> yes well, one of the things that um, we talk about a lot on this podcast is how we take the thread of, if we're in this interconnected web of life and we take the thread of food and just start to even just tug on it the tiniest bit, we get into all these other conversations, you know, got race and power and socioeconomic disparity and climate change and all these different pieces. Um, so I was curious um, if you might reflect on how, what, where the foods have been eaten and that you have been um, in your family story thinking about like your great grandparents, grandparents, parents, you, you and like your children and just wondering what the food story tell a bit of um, your story. Well, I mentioned uh, before to you, I think I think it was yesterday when I was talking that I grew up on the dirt floor of a Hogan. You know, I grew up um, in the cornfields, uh, herding the sheep. I was a shepherd, um, and what I I was I felt like I was hungry, as every growing kid is hungry, hungry, and um, I always wanted more. But one of the things that they kept us fed with was um, the food of our ancestors, which is blue corn, mm-hmm. blue corn mush. And you know, you grind a co- blue corn and you make make a porridge out of it. Basically, we call it mush. But then you burn juniper leaves, like the mm. branches of it and the leaves, and it make you get the ash from that, mm. and you sift it in a basket. Um, nowadays, you know, they have the sifters, flower sifters, but out of a basket, and the, the gray ash that comes out of it, you mix it into the blue corn mm-hmm. um, mush, and that provides vitamin C, and it's very filling. Mm-hmm. Uh, people nowadays put sugar in it, but we never put sugar in it. Mm-hmm. Um, we also grew up on sumac berries, uh, chin-chin, and uh, you make a tea out of it, you can make a porridge out of it also. It's so good, but it's very hard for people to make. Mm. There's a lot of discipline that goes into stirring ah. and making sure the consistency is, is correct. But also there was a lot of wild onions and wild carrots that used to grow. And with climate change, with the droughts, it, they are digging themselves deeper into the ground and not showing themselves. Uh-huh so we can consume them, um, or they're just disappearing in certain areas. Um, But I think that just tells the the history of my people that we lived off the land. We truly were hunter and gatherers, and we made use of what was available to us. Um, And just like, you know, we use every part of the sheep, every part of the rabbit, you know, gopher, anything that, um, that, that came to us. 
Does that answer the question? Yeah. What do you want me to go more into? Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that part of, I don't want to say this in a leading question kind of way, but I mean, maybe part of what I'm curious about mm-hmm. is how your like ancestors' ways have been, you know, when when the white people influence came in mm-hmm. and started to have opinions about mm-hmm. sugar and flour and those pieces, um, how how was that impacting that impact? Like, how did that show up through food? Oh my goodness! So right. yes, because I mean, I, th- I think there's this there's something there, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. You know, the long walk yes. of the Navajo when they were marched down to Fort Sumner, Texas. Yes, and the, you know they were they were all rounded up forcibly. And without any time, of course, to gather any anything to take with them. But even along the way, they were forced to, to march into these cattle stockades near the near near the fort. And uh, while the leaders, the Navajo leaders, women, men and women, and the U.S. government were in D.C. Ne- negotiating, because they also wanted us to get on trains to Oklahoma and put us in Indian Territory. It's known as Indian Territory today because they all share that land. They don't all have reservations. Um, And uh, but Chief Manuelito and um, all the other Navajo people were arguing and they were, were very persistent. In, in, in what we wanted. We wanted our original homelands back. Mm-hmm. So in these stockades that they would put us there, they, they couldn't just starve us um, even, I mean, they could have, but I think they were ordered to give us food. They weren't allowed to hunt. Um, even outsiders that survived uh, were caught and killed or even imprisoned themselves in trying to provide food for those inside the stockades. So what the U.S. Army did was there was so much hate and resentment there because we just wouldn't die. Mm-hmm. They gave us, um, as you may have heard, uh, chicken pox, um, yeah. uh, blank, blank infested blankets, you know, yeah. uh, but also flour that was moldy. They gave us sugar, you know. We didn't know what sugar was. Right. And they gave and your us bodies rich. didn't know what sugar no. was. Yeah. Or flour. Right. The white flour. Yeah. But it was moldy, rancid meat, um, you know, canned meat. But all of it was, was rotten. So out of that, the, the resilience of those people, they, they figured out what to do. They figured out how to get fat from... Um, some of the, I guess, the army uh, soldiers that were there, and they learned how to make fry bread out wow. of that. Wow. And that's where fry bread originates from. I mean, wow. we, we, we made do with what we had best. Yeah. We sifted the flour out, and we, we uh, cut down the meat to the bone so we could use the bones for broth. And so, long story short, um, since we wouldn't just die, the the U.S. government relented or made a deal and had a treaty. So the Treaty of 1868 was signed, and we were allowed to go back to our, our homelands. And uh, and so, but we carried the flour and the sugar, and so that came with us. Came back so when you went back north. That yes, yeah. and that was the beginning of the colonization right. of our foods, yeah. uh, our food system, and so trading posts popped up. 
Uh -huh. okay, trading posts with white owners would bring all this stuff in and trade with Navajos, and then we had to get into the system of um, trade and barter, right. like exchanging money for goods. And it was like the white flour and the sugar. Yes. I mean, the food was part of the yep. trade. Yes, yeah. and then kids were given candy, you know. Coffee was introduced. We've never had coffee before then. And so, and then, so I think in that, the government really helps create within the boundaries of the, the, the reserva Indian reservations, we were imprisoned, and they right. said the trading posts were there. We were we were kind of not. We were imprisoned in there. We couldn't go far to our natural hunting grounds and whatnot. So right. they put, yeah, and so we had to make do with what we had. And then the sheep and the horses came. Um, so and then yeah, with the trading posts came came all the sugary foods and processed foods, and then. There was the great livestock reduction in the 19, oh God, 1940s, I believe, where they said we had too much cattle, we had too much sheep. So the government also forced We were flourishing. We were doing right. very well. And they, they, they rounded up sheep and killed, shot all the livestock that they gathered. So again, yes. they were trying to impoverish the Navajo people, and we became even more reliant on the government right. and those uh, modern food systems. So they started bringing in commodity foods. Okay, commodity foods. I grew up on commodity foods, all right? So yeah. cheese, yep. <laughs> right. a lot of cheese and right. canned pork, right. canned beef, and powdered eggs. Disgusting. Right. But that's what I also grew up on. Um, and so, yeah, and I never had candy, and, and my parent, grandparents were very resistant to giving me that, and I thank them for it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, and nowadays, you know, they're trying to tell us, they keep saying more is better, and, uh, or, yeah, and cheaper is better also, right? right? Mm -hmm. So all these grocery stores, even on the reservation, Navajo Reservation, there's 12 grocery stores for 17 million acres in three states. That's a big food desert, and these wow. stores, all they have to provide at the front are processed foods. Wow. So very, by little by little, though, it's changing, but, you know, a, a little thing of blueberries on the reservation is like $12. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so it's not accessible. It's not accessible. So we're having to go in this cycle back to what, what we know, fresh foods, yeah. first foods, and whatnot. And that's still very much alive, but that, you know, the long walk was the beginning of the colonization of our yeah. foods. And it's not something that uh, these systems don't go away overnight. I mean, that like the damage is generations and generations, and still right. there is what I'm hearing. Yes. Yeah. So, like, I mean, as you're feeding your children, mm -hmm. I know you have two lovely, lovely children. Gorgeous. <laughs> um, what does that look like in terms of how you're like participating in that history? Well, I. Not to put you on the spot no. of like what you your kids like. No, but no, I like talking about yeah, anything. Okay. I'll tell you when I'm not comfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but my kids are. I love them. I am. I made a conscious decision to not feed my kids um, sweet stuff. Um, but just gradually, you know, my son is a big chocolate. Uh, fan loves chocolate, loves sweet stuff, but I do in increments, and I say it's okay to say no. Mm -hmm. And my daughter does not like sweet stuff. She likes sherbet ice cream. That's it. She will get a cake and she'll take all the frosting off and eat 
a quarter of the piece of cake that she has. So we just, we didn't introduce it to them, but you see kids around anywhere, even especially the Navajo Reservation, I feel bad. These kids with their bottles and there's Gatorade in it, mm. you know? Yeah. They're just not taught um, to, to, to hear no. And so I've, I feed them vegetables, and they love vegetables. They love uh, fresh foods. They love fresh eggs. They know the difference between store-bought eggs and cage-free eggs from our backyard. Yeah. And they love sheep. They love horse meat. Um, of course, they're very picky in their own way. But, yeah, so I've made that conscious decision to say I will not uh, succumb to the diabetes trend that's happening in my yeah. family. You know, diabetes and then, yeah, diabetes is a big thing in my family. And, uh, yeah, it's probably because I was also not raised that way. But my husband said I used to ki- he used to drink Coke and Twinkies for breakfast. <laughs> oh. This is in Iowa. Oh. And, but he was also product of a single father. So, and then, uh, and he never really ate vegetables until he met me. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that culture. It's yeah. not just on the reservation, but it's nationwide. But yeah, my yeah. kids also eat fresh foods at their school. The service to all relations school, star school. And they have hydroponics there that grow That's salad. Great. They have greenhouses. Loop Family Farms is right down the road that feed, that, where they help plant and then they eat it. They eat fresh food there, yeah. So there's, it seems like, I mean, we can't undo all of the, the terrible food history, but mm-hmm. that there is some, there's resiliency that's happening in this generation, is what yes. I'm hearing, is there's resiliency of being able to find what, what, how can we grow food, how can we eat food that is going to nourish. Yes, yeah, there, I feel like there's little pockets, many yeah. little pockets with gaps in between of people who are... Uh, building that resilience even stronger and you too are part of that that crew you know in trying to promote um, you know healthy foods first foods and whatnot so like your your farm Sam I mean that's very inspiring so yeah a lot of young people um, I'm are up and coming I just met a 17 year old in Tucson who's helping run a nursery down there 17. That's amazing. He's mm-hmm. like, this is all what I've always wanted to do. And I said, wow. <laughs> always, all 17 years. You're always 17. Yeah. yeah it was amazing. amazing. So. so I've heard you, I've heard you several times in this conversation the word resiliency. And I know that you've spent a lot of your, your, um, your professional life, if you will, um, mm-hmm. working on resiliency um, mm-hmm. with, with um, various tribes. And so can you describe a little bit about what that looks like in the work that you're engaged in, yes. um, developing resiliency to climate change? Growing up, resiliency was a word um, defined by our actions and our thought process and our faith, you know, our prayers and our ceremonies. Uh, just do it. Just be, just be that. Um, and uh, so now it's a trendy word because climate change is unacceptable with the current administration. But it, even before Obama came into the office, it was, it was a, climate change was a bad word. Global, global warming was a bad word. But there was always this resilience. You know, you see people with their fists and arms um, up in the air. Um, and that whole movement is pretty much defined by our faith uh, and our connection to the natural world. Mm-hmm. 
and we've always had that. So in my work with climate uh, change adaptation or mitigation planning, um, we promote, uh, encourage people to include their culture, mm -hmm. their language, and their, their faith, and their prayers, and their ceremony, ceremonial schedules. Um, all of that is resilience because if you recall the assimilation of native people or all indigenous peoples, even people of color, even the, the Scots, the Scottish people, uh, there's groups of people that have been assimilated into the mainstream culture and tried to break that connection to the natural world. So through that, recognizing that in these pieces of documents that mm. can be 100 to 200 pages long, the fact that they have traditional language uh, in there is 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 uh, groundbreaking. Yeah. In this fr Western framework that tries yeah. to say you've got to follow this outline. Right. And we're saying no more. No, we're doing this. This is how climate change is affecting the rain, the waters, our water quality, and you know. And then they recognize the water DT down below. The next chapter is the on all the animals. The bear, uh, the beaver, you know, and what it means culturally, and then how it's being affected, and they put the science right there. That's great. So there's yeah. like Western and uh, indigenous science included in there. So that's resilience right there, N not taking no for an answer, and putting yeah. ourselves where we belong. Well, and, I would, and it sounds like, and putting your selves in it. Yes. Right? So saying like, okay, we got to speak the language of these reports, but we're not going to just take the Western way of having this conversation. Not like, we know who we're talking to, but we're going to still be who we are. That's what I'm all. hearing. And I think yes. that's really, it's such, such power in that. And, and one more thing, when I, when I was in forestry school, I have a forestry background, and I went to Northern Arizona University's forestry school, and it's probably one of the best in the nation. I think there's um, uh, other schools that are really good, but we have old growth ponderosa pine forests there, okay. so yeah. we have that on our side. Yes. <laughs> um, but we studied Gifford Pinchot, and he's the father of forestry, yeah. as we... We revered him and, and whatnot, but but he also comes from an era that promoted fire suppression, right? And in era in areas in regions where native people were using it to take care of the land right. and to stave off pest, pests and um, invasive diseases and, and and woody debris and all that stuff. And so um, yeah, so that 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 part of it is is still alive and well and whatnot and so we're just kind of there was no mention of indigenous forestry at all indigenous fire practices until later in my college career and whatnot i think that's changing right now right now because you know you cannot keep indigenous women quiet or yeah. indigenous people and thank you yeah. for that well i think that um i mean that segues into something i just want to ask you to, well, I want to say that I believe and I ask you to speak further on is just the importance of the indigenous voice in these conversations. And I know that I'm aware that it can be, you know, that whole thing of being the only indigenous person in the room. And I'm so grateful that you keep showing up in rooms that mm -hmm. I show up in the same room. Yeah, um, but I also um, just want to give you space to, to speak speak to that and speak to um, how 
like who else should we be talking to, you know, and who else should our listeners be reading and listening to? And I mean, you obviously, but, of course. but who else? <laughs> and and how can this conversation be one that is not just a white Western conversation? Because our globe is not just white and Western. Mm-hmm. Go figure. Even if the systems, yeah, the white Western conversation is always going to be a desiccated conversation. It's always going to be less than it ought to be. Oh, very well put. Yeah. You know, I will start out with how indigenous uh, communities, tribal councils, the leadership councils were created by the Secretary of Interior under the Bureau of Indian Affairs solely to deal with one group of people, namely a group of men from the tribe to manage and extract resources, natural resources, namely um, ores, you know, I think that's what you call it, or uranium, coal, um, from these lands that they were put on. When the government put us on these lands that were thought to be um, useless, Mm. but little did they know they were really rich in resources that they were very interested in. So that is all of a sudden, right? All of a sudden, Yeah. yeah. That's why councils were created. Thus, then, that also created, um, well, within these treaties and, and uh, agreements uh, that people, reservations were created, that created the Great White Father in Washington, D.C., to right. speak for all Native people. Yeah. Did you know that we are managed under the Bureau of Indian Affairs along with forests, wild fish and wildlife, and then there's the Indians? No. We are a managed resource. No. So that, yeah. I, right, yeah, oh, right I there. Yeah. I would admit for everyone, didn't, did, had no I idea. I did not know that. No other race in the country is managed like a resource. And so thus, that has created and taken away, actually taken away our voice. Yes. Uh, or attempted to take away our voice um, in really significant uh Issues uh, from all of the people. So, in the before these councils were created, we often all made decisions. Women were at the forefront. Women were at the table with alongside the men. Children were allowed in yeah. these conversations. But then this Western framework came in and took that voice away. And so for a long time, it's like we had to do what the government told us, and they also viewed us as um, uneducated. And some would say unwilling and whatnot, because we didn't understand what they were saying or doing or writing in fine print. Um, but. There have always been people speaking out against it. There are grandmothers still alive to this day that have traveled to D.C. or even prevented, you know, uh, the government or local governments or other non-native people from entering their lands. You know, Standing Rock is a great example of that, where all the grandmas and grandfathers and the young people were were there. But that's been going on. That's not new. Yeah. That's not new. So, and then the educational system also has given voice, no matter how expensive it is, given voice to people. This year, I have never seen or heard more Native women and men getting their doctorate degrees Mm. in every field. Mm -hmm. That's power right there. Mm -hmm. It gives us the credibility that the Western world needs to see to take us seriously and whatnot. So, um, 
and, and that's why the indigenous voice is so important because even in my work growing up, I just had to keep saying, how come I'm not at the table? How come she's not at the table? Or he, why were not, we were native people were not invited. So many times I've said that, and being, I was like the first Native American board member for the Grand Canyon Association, which is a philanthropic partner to the Grand Canyon National Park. The first you were the one. first. The first right. one, and there's in 11, the 2000s or something, right? There's yeah. yes, 11 tribes that oh create, that consider the Grand Canyon holy, right, and call it home. But yet I was the first one. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. And um, but also even with the federal agencies, they have these national boards. There's hardly an indigenous voice, but yet they're managing public lands or federal lands that are culturally significant and whatnot. And often, sometimes people make the mistake of including a native person and treating them as a token right. box that's to be checked yep. off. And that should not be. And I feel like this Ecotones of the Spirit conference, but also Fred's work at Wake Forest with the food, health, and well-being um, program has done... I, I appreciate the way he has asked me to be involved. Mm -hmm. He's, I've never felt taken advantage of. I've always been felt valued, respected, mm -hmm. and I've always had space, and that's important. Yeah. And if they, and he, he said, you don't have to talk if you don't want to, right. and that's okay. And you have to allow that because not everybody, not all Indigenous people talk like I do. Some are more forceful, some are more private, or they, they hold back, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, so it's so important because your lands are our lands, our lands are yours. We all have this shared interest in taking care of the environment and all our animals on it, our birds, our, you know, everything on there. So we value that, and we just want people to take care of it, but we also want to, our voices to be included, which I really appreciate your sermon this morning. You, uh, you mentioned the Ojibwe, and you mentioned the Cherokee people, I believe, or some other tribe. I, 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 we mentioned a Hawaiian indigenous Hawaiian, prayer. Yes. I, I unfortunately did, wasn't able to be more specific with. No, that's but. yeah, that's huge. Even Fred um, and Matthew, the first two days, said they gave thanks to the people that were here before us. Mm -hmm. That is huge. You know, yeah. I mean, I yeah, I just I, I just think that we always try to do that um, as indigenous peoples. We realize we're not on our. Familiar territory, yeah. and that, that we were not—we're not the first ones here. Yeah. So, but yeah, the indigenous voice is important because we were here, we have been here, and are still going to be here. And I think we have a lot to learn from indigenous peoples because they have a different perspective. And diversity mm -hmm. is good, right? Yes. Homogeny yes. is the death of diversity. Amen. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Uh, to both of you for this podcast um, to allow the indigenous voice to be on there. It means more than words can say and uh, our actions can can show. It's huge and I hope, um, and I know you too will, <laughs> provide more indigenous yes. voices yes. on there yes. and whatnot. So. And we are so grateful for your willingness to come and to yeah. take some time, especially at the end of a long day. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, just totally own it. And so many, so many times we're like, oh, look at this brand new idea we have of food and faith. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as, as I've, you know, and you introduced 
me to you know just as this world that is that has been thinking about these things and bringing mm. bringing our practices um, you know I, and our shared love of agriculture and yes. livestock and all but recognizing that's always been set alongside mm-hmm. yeah. of our faith and our families and our land um, and so it's been tremendously humbling and that has expanded my world yeah. like all of a sudden there's so many more resources that I can draw from because yes. because you know because it's not just me it has to figure it out or people mm-hmm. that look like me and so incredibly grateful again that you continue to participate in these circles oh you bet Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to download the rest of our Ecotones of the Spirit series and to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on the conversations happening around food, health, and ecological well-being. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.